Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thanks so much for tuning in. Welcome back. Hope you are well. Hope you are safe wherever you are in this crazy world. Today, we're airing another great episode we recorded back in March of this year with David Primer, right before things shut down. And because of the pandemic, of course, we never did get a chance to release it. So here it is. David Primer is widely recognized as a thought leader in the area of sales and sales leadership. He's fueled a lifelong passion for learning and execution with the foundation of his new business called Cerebral Selling. Often referred to as the sales professor, David helps organizations drive revenue growth, people development, and winning cultures by infusing the core principles of science, empathy, and execution into sales operations. Previously, David held several executive leadership positions at leading tech companies, including Salesforce, where he was the VP of commercial sales and creator of the Sales Leadership Academy program. His new book is called Sell the Way You Buy, which you can find on Amazon and elsewhere. And in this deep dive into, you guessed it, all things sales, we discuss the magic number of connects in order to convert a potential buyer, objection handling using the word because, why we seem to hate salespeople, yet most of us are actually in sales, and much, much more. And with that intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is my amazing conversation with David Creamer. And you talk about motivations for why people buy, and a lot of it comes from emotion, less so from logic, although logic does play a role. So why don't we start there? What is it? What is it about emotion that triggers us to buy a certain way? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we know at the end of the day, you know, most people are buying feelings more than they're buying logic and reason. And to your point, you know, logic and reason definitely plays a factor in how we make purchasing decisions. But the reason why we use emotions so often is because it just helps us make decisions quicker and you know, when you think about the brain, the, the purpose of your brain is to do two things. It's to keep you safe and to use as few calories as possible trying to do that. You know, most people sometimes don't realize your brain actually consumes 20% of the calories that you eat every day. And most of those calories go towards keeping you alive, like breathing and walking around, those kinds of things. 
So this whole like executive function of like, well, you know, what what software should I buy and what job should I you know, job offer should I accept and you know which products, what should I order for lunch? Like those kinds of things are things that your brain tries to take shortcuts on. And so most decisions that we make are, you know, emotional based or based on kind of like the entrenched patterns of feeling. So that's really why we, you know, we base so much of our decisions based on emotions. It's just easier and faster. Do you find that most sales executives understand this phenomenon and how do they begin to be more effective given this notion that you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, so do they understand it? Like, yes and no. I, th I think believe, I think people, you know, intellectually understand it, but I would say two things. Number one, as sellers, we often do not. And I would say like sellers and marketers, right? Like I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of like the, the Dan Pink, you know, everyone is in sales, you know, everyone is kind of a non-sales seller, even if your title is not a salesperson. And, you know, all of us, you know, tend to execute our sales and marketing motion with sometimes like a little bit too much kind of, you know, I would say like intellectual rigor. So, you know, we, we kind of deliver slick pitches and ROI analyses and business cases. All those things are good, but it does tend to push us more towards the logical side of the spectrum. So we don't always realize it. But the second part of that equation is as buyers, because as sellers, we're also human beings, right? If you're marketing, you're also a human being, you're an entrepreneur and you buy things. And to the question of, do you as a buyer understand that when you buy things, you are buying based on emotion? No, most, most of the times we don't. Again, like that's the way your brain works. So you mentioned Dan Pink and the majority of us are in sales. And I think he's got a stat, something like one in nine are working in some kind of sales job, but without any kind of sales training whatsoever. And I'm just going to cite a statistic that I think you'll be familiar with. So there's 4,000 universities in the U.S., about 100 in Canada, and less than 200 actually have a sales program, let alone a sales course. So given the fact that we have these stats, why do you think the majority of us enter the workforce without any sales training? And, and what can we learn or how can we learn to be more effective salespeople? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's like, well, well, why? Um, you know, like, why isn't this more prevalent and to your point, I think, and your statistic is well taken in terms of, you know, the, the number of institutions actually having any sort of formal training, the Dan Pink statistics, which I actually talk about in my book as well, is from the, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics in the United States. And, you know, it's like one in nine people in the United States have like a, like they are in sales, like they have a sales title and, you know, it's actually the number one most common profession in America. And what Dan Pink was saying is he said, well, you know, that might be the case, but let me do a survey here. And I'm going to ask people this question, you know, what percentage of your job would you say involves moving people from one position to the next, right? Like this idea of like sales is about moving people from one kind of mindset or you know, frame of mind to another. And, you know, he said in, in some jobs, that percentage is upwards of 80% of my time is spent doing that, even though I'm not in sales. So selling is, is a huge component to be an entrepreneur, right? Because you can develop a product, you, you know, that you have the cloud, the web, like it's so easy. And yet this is something that we don't train people to do. Like, you know, the education in this area is lacking. Like just the simple question of what do you do, Adam? Like when I ask someone, like, what do you do? Like, what do you say? Typically, you know, people are, are very, um, you know, entrenched in their products and services. And the answers they give are you know, kind of just very functional, technical, if I can call it that. So, so why? Why is it the case? 
I think it's like an issue of, of catching up, frankly. You know, this idea of the way we buy has actually changed quite a lot in you know, the last you know, five, ten years. And our understanding of how people buy has actually you know, changed quite a lot. But the way we sell hasn't. I still think that's one of the reasons why just sales education is lacking. Like we're only now starting to realize how important it is when there's so many solutions on the market, when customers are more distracted than ever before, that we need to invest in this craft of selling. Why do people have such a negative perception of sales and or salespeople? Yeah. Where does this come from? So you know, one of the biggest reasons why this perception exists, let's T- let's take a moment, and I'm going to do this exercise on you, but everyone here listening can, can do the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. Close your eyes, and I want you to picture the kind of the quintessential salesperson. I want you to picture the worst possible salesperson you could ever imagine. Like, what type of salesperson do you picture? What does this person sell? Cars. That's right, cars. So most people, when they think about the, the worst car salesman they can think of, it's or sorry, the worst salesman, they think of like a car salesman. And in fact, they tend to go back even further to like used car salesman is kind of the, the typical mm-hmm. most popular answer mm-hmm. on the family feud. And and you ask me like, so why do people not like talking to salespeople? Well, if you think about like how car salesmen or historically the used car salesmen had typically operated. It was based on this principle, which Dan Pink actually talks about in his book, To Sell as Human, of information asymmetry. And so the word asymmetry just means imbalance. And so what that means is when you went to go buy that used car, that salesperson knew an awful lot about that used car and you knew nothing. And there was very little you could do to find out about that car. You know, let's say historically, there was no, you know, there was, you weren't going to like put the VIN number into the web. The web wasn't a thing. There were no, you know, kind of, you know, auto trader and reviews, you know, kind of going back many years. But like you just had to believe whatever that salesperson told you. And in fact, like that kind of metaphor of of, um, information asymmetry existed in so many different areas of the sales universe. And so we always kind of grew up not knowing if we could trust the salesperson. So if that car was a piece of shit, we would never know until we drove it off the lot. And while now information asymmetry has given way to information parity, as Dan Payne calls it. So with this information parity notion that the internet has provided, um, I assume sellers uh, don't have the kind of product knowledge advantage that they used to. Um, so what? how have they had to adjust their techniques? And are they moving to a more relationship-based approach? Well, I think they need to be more authentic. You know, and I know these stats are quoted all over the web, but, you know, buyers are now entering the sales cycle much later than speaking to a sales rep you know they're doing research online they're doing like their you know trip advisor and trust radius reviews and it's only then that they reach out to you whereas before there there, you know, there really wasn't anything so they had to you know you know speak to you is kind of like the first step so i think that's the the biggest thing Salespeople know that they're being brought in later um and they also know that there are so many different solutions out there on the market like it used to be you know there's only a handful of choices when you were going to buy this thing or that thing now there's like literally thousands and thousands of choices. And the, the example I often give is from the, the marketing technology landscape. 2011, there was 150 vendors in that market. And in 2019, this was April 2019, there was over 7,000. And so sellers are having to adjust their emotion 
like knowing that their customers are coming in later than ever before, and there's a million other solutions that do what they do. So the enemy is no longer kind of like the competition, where like I'm trying to figure out and, and convince you why we're better than someone else, but rather it's to kind of the status quo, like it's attention, it's inertia, that's the enemy. And so that's kind of like the, the new thing that modern sellers are trying to overcome. Hmm. So these are warm prospects, obviously, if they're coming in later into the cycle. What about cold prospects? And do you have any stats around the amount of touch points, follow-ups, emails, phone calls, or whatever to generate a first response from a cold prospect? Yeah. Well, so you know, there's some statistics I quoted in my book, and they're from uh, the Bridge Group based out of New England. And they do a report every year on basically BDR and SDR metrics. And they track like how many connection attempts does it take for BDR or SDR to connect with a prospect. And in 2010, that number was about four. So it takes about four outreach attempts. And in 2018, that number doubled to about eight. So it's actually taken quite a lot. And, you know, it's interesting when we talk about this idea of empathy in sales, and I talk a lot about empathy in sales, right? Because as buyers, we don't like to be bothered, you know, in general. And so sometimes sellers will say, well, you know what? I don't, I don't want to bother my customers because I don't like to be bothered as a buyer. And yet the number of connection attempts it takes to actually, you know, reach a customer has doubled since 2010, probably even more now. And so being empathetic doesn't give you the excuse to be lazy. I just want to kind of put that out there is that, you know, if you have something of value and you can actually help your customers and prospects, sure, they're harder to reach than ever before. Sure, they operate on inertia and, you know, they out of out of uh, kind of survival. They try to ignore you uh, as long as they can. But, you know, if there's something you're selling that's a value, keep on your customers. You know, you will be successful, but just understand that it's going to take longer than it used to. What about the time frame in between the touch points? What is acceptable and how much breathing room or space should you give a prospect? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. So I don't have any statistics on that. However, I'll, I will tell you some statistics I do have. And this was something I looked at, um, you know, in, in my various VP sales roles, which is how long are we spending in the sales cycles of, you know, customers who end up buying from us and who don't end up buying from us? And kind of what's the difference there? And what I found is really interesting. If you look at, let's say you're doing discovery with a customer. Now, if, if you're talking to a customer and they ultimately uh, buy something from you, then you've made it through the entire sales cycle. If you are talking to a customer and they don't buy something from you, at least hopefully you've made it through that discovery phase, like that initial phase of the sales cycle when they either drop off or you know they, they kind of go dark or they tell you, oh, I don't want to buy anything. And when I looked at the amount of time that sales reps were spending in that discovery phase of a sales cycle, what I found for the deals that they won or deals that they lost, I found that they were actually spending three times longer on deals that they ended up losing than deals that they ended up winning. And when you think about like, well, what's happening then in those sales cycles, so I reach out to a customer and you know we're having a conversation or they hit my website and there's interest there. Like they get what we do, they think that this is something that can help them. And so they become engaged, right? And so they return my calls. We kind of move through the sales cycle at a, at a more brisk pace versus customers who aren't sure of the value that we can provide and aren't sure if they like our solution. And so the touch points typically, especially at the beginning of that sales cycle in the discovery phase, 
are longer, you know, as they kind of drag their heels and they kind of aren't sure. And so while I don't have any statistics that point to like, well, how long is, you know, is too long. If you take a look at the deals that you're working with your customers, I, you know, I would, I would ask you to compare the amount of time you're taking in those initial steps for customers you end up winning and losing. I'm sure you will find that the customers that are, are more aligned with your solution move through that sales cycle a lot quicker. And those are obviously like really good signs for how you can architect your sales cycle to, um, to, to attract more and support more of those high fit, good fit customers. In the discovery phase, at the very, very beginning of the sales cycle, what are some quick tactics to build rapport virtually, given that you know, 20, 30 years ago, the role of the phone was critical, and now we're at a point where a lot of us simply don't want to talk to anyone. So how does a salesperson build rapport with someone virtually? Yeah, um, you know, this is like, there could be like a whole school on this, <laughs> on this topic, because there's lots of things you can do. The easiest thing, and this is kind of funny, is do more stuff over video. You know, we're, we're so attuned to, um, and accustomed, I should say, making phone calls, and there's nothing wrong with phone calls. Phone calls are okay. Uh, emails are okay. LinkedIn, social, like, that's okay. But all of those things don't let anyone physically see you. And a funny thing happens when we don't see things in front of us. There's a concept known as abstraction that comes into play, which is just basically putting like an emotional distance between things. Like, so for example, you know, it's, it's the reason why you don't donate money. I'm not calling you out specifically. I don't, you, you don't donate money to starving children in Africa. It's not that you're a bad person, but you don't, you don't see starving African children every day, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, though that's ha- something that's happening somewhere else. And so, you know, the same thing happens between buyers and sellers, meaning, you know, as a buyer, you don't like talking to salespeople. So that's totally fine. And what happens is when a salesperson calls you, you kind of just like, you can picture them however you want. You can picture them like Gordon Gecko or Blake or, you know, like, a, like the bad person. But what happens is when you actually see someone, all of these like other senses and emotions get kicked off, right? Maybe they... They look like someone you know or someone you're related to, or maybe there's something interesting going on in the background behind them that becomes kind of more intriguing. And so if all you're doing is making calls all day then or, or anything that's virtual, you're missing like a huge opportunity, or I'd say that's text-based. You're missing a huge, or text or voice only, missing that huge opportunity. And, you know, the data supports this. You know, when you look at open rates of like video messages or engagement rates on video calls, they're like off the charts. Even, you know, the folks at Gong did some research and they found that, you know, closed one deals involve the use of a webcam like 40% more often, right? So, you know, that's the easiest thing. Speaking of video, um, people can just Google your name uh, and or Cerebral Selling and find a ton of great content on YouTube. Let me ask you about your, a couple of these videos, specifically starting with the So What or how targeting technique. What is this all about? The way it works is this, like again, so much of selling comes back to how we respond to just very simple asks. So when I ask you like, what do you do? Like, what do you say? And oftentimes when I ask people like, well, what do you do? I get like a very um, functional response. Like we're a software company that provides, you know, accounting solutions to entrepreneurs. Like, oh, okay. Like, and what do I do? I smile and I say like, that's nice. So if you're giving that kind of response, like the question is, well, how do you kind of amp up the emotional impact of that response and really target it strategically? 
And so if you think about like that initial response of like, oh, we're a software company that does this as kind of like a, like a ring in a, in a circle, right? It's a kind of draw that circle on a piece of paper. How do you get closer to the center of that target, like the bullseye? And you can start asking questions, right? Like around like the, the so what, who cares, like how you do that. And so to move closer to the center of the target, you ask that question, so what? So I ask you, what do you do? And you say, well, we're a software company that provides accounting services to entrepreneurs. And I say, great, so what? And you say, oh, okay, well, you know, it helps them save money. And I say, okay, well, great, like, so what? And like, well, it helps them get paid faster too. I'm like, okay, so what? Well, then it helps them grow their business and it helps them increase their cash flow and it helps them um, pay their employees faster. And, and they kind of, you know, go on and on and on. And so now you end up with a much more strategic message. When I say, what do you do? You might say, instead of, well, we're accounting software that helps, you know, you do invoicing, all these kinds of things. I say, we help entrepreneurs get paid faster and run their business with less friction. That's a much more interesting message than like, oh, we're software and we do ABC. And then on the flip side, let's say you're talking to someone who's a little bit more technical and wants to learn a little bit more about, you know, what you do. Well, you take that initial message of what you said of like, oh, we're a software company that does A, B, and C, and you kind of get further away from the center of the target by asking this question, how? Okay, well, how do you do that? Oh, well, you know, we're on this platform and we have a mobile app and, you know, kind of you get a more functional response. And certain, certainly there's like different levels of buyers because buyers, you know, you might have a technical buyer, you might have a more strategic buyer. So the question is like, how do you take your message and moderate it? right? Based on the person that you're speaking to. Because when I ask you what you do, the way you respond should depend on who's asking. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window your work can take you all over the place like texas you've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at la quinta by window their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead and after you can unwind using their free high-speed wi-fi tonight la quinta tomorrow you shine Book your stay today at LQ.com. This feels a lot like the Simon Sinek start with why technique, where you're trying to really invoke emotion. Yes. Well, it's funny. So the, the, the group I was working with this week said the exact same thing. There are lots of models that kind of operate on this kind of concentric circle approach. And you're right. It's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's true that like the closer you get to that kind of start with why, the, the golden circle, as Simon Sinek explains it, the more compelling the story is. Cynic stuff is great, but he doesn't get to peddle the title sales professor like you do. <laughs> so there you go. Well done. Um, moving on to another one of your videos, which I think is great. The idea of handling customer objections with the word because. How does this work? Oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite, favorite tactics. And it's also the easiest one to execute when it comes to objection handling. So I would say, you know, for anyone listening out there who wants the simplest objection handling, that super powerful objection handling tactic, this is for you. Because is this magnificent, magical trigger word. 
And it's based on this principle that people, right, they like explanations for things. They want to know why things happen. And our brains, when we have that explanation, they, they calm down and they relax. And so whenever you're in a situation where, you know, someone is objecting to something that you're doing, if you just give them a reason using the word because, it sends a message to that person's brain to say, oh, I just heard the word because. The thing I'm about to hear now is going to be the explanation or rationale for the thing I just heard. And whenever I hear it, it just totally pacifies the mind. I've used this tactic a ton in my sales career, and I've taught this to tons of reps as well, who report back that this is just the most magical thing. Whenever you get an objection, just give a reason for why you're, why you, you, you know, you have, you, well, you know, your, your product, well, that sounds really expensive. Oh yeah, no, I understand it's really expensive. Well, the reason we charge that much is because, right? Or can you extend my free trial? You know, I, I didn't get to use, well, I'm, uh, I'd love to extend your free trial, but we can't do that because like, just throw in the word because it is a magical, magical word. <laughs> There's a subset of listeners that are working for someone and the wheels are spinning. They're saying, I deserve a 25% salary increase because I deserve a 25% salary increase. Just hoping that their boss is going to be like, yep, okay, use the word because, there you yeah, go. That makes sense. Well, the, the funny thing is, so you, if, remember, the, the magnitude of your request has an impact, right, on the effectiveness of that word. So if you're like, oh, I'd like to make a million dollars next year because I uh, like money. Like, that's not going to be sufficient. But um, but it, you know, for the most of the, the requests that we get in our normal everyday lives, and uh, and certainly in the sales world, when it comes to objections, it's it's a super magical word, and it's super easy to use. And you're probably doing it already, and you don't even realize it. You know, once you realize it, and you can execute that tactic with more intent, you're going to be uh, unstoppable. So I know we flipped the order of things. Um, we spent a lot of time. I thought we were going to do this at the second half of the podcast, and obviously we ended up talking about sales for the first half. Um, but I got to get back to your background because it's fascinating. So you are a chemical engineer now running a sales training company. So we've seen some very interesting career transitions on the podcast, but have yet to run into this one. <laughs> so where does this transition begin? Yeah, no, I, uh, I started my career as a research scientist. I, uh, did undergraduate in chemistry and physics and ended up doing, um, graduate work in engineering, building computer models of all things. But I ended up getting into a startup at the kind of the turn of the dot-com boom in kind of 99, 2000. And at that time, you know, a lot, everything was going nuts and startups were just hiring, you know, people with, with any sort of, you know, customer facing and technical prowess to, to join. And I joined this awesome startup um, based in Toronto called Workbrain. We were 20 employees at the time. And uh, I joined that company as a sales engineer. So shout out to anyone who has a sales engineer or no sales engineers, the Navy SEALs of any technology company. Um, mm. And I ended up doing, like I was customer facing. I had been familiar with in my engineering days, doing a lot of like technical presentations and really trying to take things that were kind of complicated and, and kind of distill them down so people could understand. And I, I did like coding and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm joining this technology company, basically doing functional technical demos and, and custom coding was how I got into sales. And um, the company was awesome. You know, we grew it to 700 people and a $100 million business over the course of the next several years before getting acquired. But it kind of put me in this mindset of thinking about selling almost as an engineering problem, you know, if I can call it that. Mm -hmm. like. Well, when I said it like this, the customer understood it. When I said it like that, they were all confused. Um, and just also seeing kind of, you know, 
sales reps, account executives, and how they executed. That was a, an enterprise um, software company. So we were working with like super big companies, very long sales cycle. So I, as a, a person, as a research scientist, the thing I love to do is learn more than anything else. And so, you know, getting into sales, which as we kind of talked about, it's not something that I knew was a job or a thing I could get into. Like no one grows up saying, you know what I want to be when I grow up, right, is a seller. But I absolutely fell in love with sales because it was so nuanced and it was so difficult, right? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I kind of just kind of caught the sales bug, but always kind of approached it from a kind of very observational standpoint. And, um, you know, as the career unfolded, I, I worked across four uh, awesome startups. Uh, three of those startups ended up getting acquired. Uh, one, which I helped start in 2008, got acquired by Salesforce. And then I came over to uh, to Salesforce, uh, spent five awesome years there, really enjoyed my time and uh, ended up running a small business sales for Salesforce for the Eastern US, which was great because I was basically servicing customers like I was. I had been a Salesforce customer many, many times. And so now I was servicing, you know, thousands of customers through my teams that were just like I was. And so that's kind of how it uh, how it came full circle, and that's how the transition from uh, from science to sales happened. And also, this is at a time um, specifically at Salesforce. I think beginning in 2012, you were there. Um, I mean, this is a period when CRM, just as a niche in the software world, was really taking off. Right? What was it like to be a part of that growth? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's you know when I joined Salesforce in kind of Feb one 2012, which was the start of their fiscal year, so the, the acquisition of my company was kind of. Uh, well timed for that. There were 6,000 employees, which was the biggest company I'd ever worked for. And when I left five years later, they were 24,000 employees. And now, you know, now 2020, they're almost 50,000 employees. And so um, it was really great. I mean, there was certainly a lot of, um, you know, structure and scale that was already built into the business. But it was really cool to see how, how do you go from 6,000 to, to 24,000 people in five years? Um, and certainly there's, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, like operational um, challenges and opportunities and cultural um, challenges, opportunities and, and concern, you know, product centric and um, growth centric. So, yeah, that was um, that was a really cool thing to see, because there's also things that you can't see when you're a small business. You know, you could have 50 sales reps. Right. But you won't really see the same trends or patterns that you will if you have 5000 sales reps. Right. So that was kind of the, the cool thing to see at Salesforce, things that you just can't see as a smaller company. And then post Salesforce, you join Influitive, right? Another, I don't know, how would you define them as a startup? They were kind of a scale up. So that was the, yeah. the latest, the latest I'd ever joined a company. Usually I joined companies kind of at the beginning. Um, Influitive was like a seven year old company at the time. What was it like transitioning from a company of 24,000, right? In Salesforce to Influitive. And what did you learn at Influitive that, planted the seeds for cerebral selling, which is what you're building now. For sure. Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, making the transition back to a smaller company was, um, I felt always going to be in the cards only because I love uh, figuring things out. I love building. And as you can imagine, you work for a big company like Salesforce, which is great. You're not really touching the product or the roadmap or the marketing, you're just as a sales leader, you're focused on sales and sales execution and growth and growing the team. And it's a different, totally different scope of decisions versus when you work at like a scale up or growth company, 
you can have impact into the product and you, you know, you know, the engineering leaders and you all sit together. And so it's just a totally different feel. So it felt very, um, I should say like familiar coming back to that, um, kind of organization, but kind of how that eventually led to what I do now is, you know, and, and credit to Salesforce. One of the things that Salesforce loves is they love acquiring companies and they love when the entrepreneurs from those acquired companies, you know, kind of, you know, get into the organization and stretch their wings because they bring new insights and perspectives. You know, it's a great harmony because you think about this company that's you know, been around for so long and it's just a huge juggernaut. How do you infuse you know, new tactics and principles? Well, they, they, you know, they value the entrepreneurs. And so when I came in, they allowed me to do things like, like write. You know, I, I loved, um, you know, writing and sharing my thoughts and certainly coming in from an environment where I had been a Salesforce customer before, kind of talking about how, you know, we could help customers like I was, you know, now being on the other side of the fence. And so they allowed me to do things like write. And I wrote a bunch of, whole, bunch of articles for the Salesforce blog. And a bunch of those articles ended up getting like picked up by like Forbes and Entrepreneur and all these great outlets. And so I, I kept doing it. And, you know, I, I created a bunch of programs at Salesforce for, for leaders and customers, just kind of around this concept of like, how can we help people uh, grow? And uh, I kept writing for Salesforce, which was great. Um, and when I left to go to Influtive, I continued to write for Salesforce. And Salesforce was great because they loved the content and it was a great platform because lots of people, you know, look to Salesforce for, for these perspectives. And so, um, you know, after a while, I just ended up with this massive storehouse of, of information, right? Like articles and, and things I'd written. And then my buddy Adam calls me up and says, Hey David, like what, you know, I'm starting my business, you know, what, what advice, you know, selling advice, leadership advice do you have for me? And I was just sending you to like all of these, these are like, I'd have to send you to a million websites where all these articles were. And so I said, well, this is stupid. Like, I should just have my own website where I can just put all this stuff. And so Cerebral Selling was just born while I was in my last VP role just to have a place to put all my stuff. And after a while, you know, it kind of just got to the point where I said, this is obviously what I love to do, right? I'm doing this for free out of the goodness of my heart because, you know, even though I have this quota and this team I'm running, um, you know, I, I love this stuff. You know, I love figuring out sales. I love figuring out things in general. I love taking apart just, you know, things and rewiring things. And, and I said, this should be my job. So I kind of turned um, cerebral selling like into a business and really went like full bore on exploring the world of modern selling through the power, through the, 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 the lens of science and empathy and uh, never looked back. But at the same time, I mean, this is a very interesting transition from going, you know, from startup to big juggernaut at Salesforce back to startup or scale up uh, and then finally to a solopreneur type of business, I want to call it, where you've really turned your personal brand into a business. So how do you think about it now? And, and is there an aspect of this that's uncomfortable for you, given that it's just you? So this is like the the happiest and most fulfilled I've ever been in my career. And I've had, I'm really blessed to have a really great career working with, with awesome companies and, 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 and leaders and, and all that stuff. But again, this to me, while this is a ton of work and I'm working harder than I ever have in my career, this is the most fulfilled I've been because I realized this is what I was meant to do. Right. And, you know, I would say for people who are trying to figure out, and, and by the way, even though I say this is what I was meant to do, um, I don't regret the fact that this is the path I took to get here because this is the path that was needed, 
right, mm-hmm. to get here. You can't just say, this is my passion. And, and, you know, in all fairness, I do speak to a lot of great, you know, entrepreneurs and sellers who say, you know, hey, I would love to start my own business and do, and, and some of them do it too early. Like, I feel like you need a certain amount of, of time and experience to kind of see the trends and patterns so that you can go in and really, really add value to a customer. But uh, so it doesn't feel in so many ways like work what I do, even though I'm working super hard. Um, but now as a solopreneur, you know, I do everything. And that's not great. It is a bit of a struggle at times, um, but I, I couldn't love what I do now anymore. It's, it's amazing. What's it like as an introvert to get up on stage at these large conferences the way you do and deliver keynotes? So I, I'm going to pan back to my, my, my buddy here, Simon Sinek, and he did a little video once where people asked him, they said, how did you become such a good speaker, right? Like, how, like we, we, you get up on stage, and you're able to move people, like, how do you do that? And I, you know, I don't know Simon, I sense he's probably an introverted person as well. And he, he kind of laughs and he says, you know, well, I, I joke, I say I can cheat. I only speak about things that I'm passionate about, and I only speak about things that I understand. And I'd say that's that's so true, right? And that's my secret is that like I get up on stage and I'm not talking about something that is like is abstract to me. It's something that I've lived for 20 years plus. It's something that I love. It's something that I, I read about and explore and I write about. And so, you know, when I get up on stage and I, I talk about it, it's, you know, imagine, you know, for you or, or anyone listening, like think about something that you're passionate about. It doesn't have to be business. It could be a sport, a team, a type of music. If I said, you know, get up on stage and talk about that, like I would be able to tell that this is something you're deeply connected to. And that's my secret. Um, But it's interesting on the flip side, not to unnecessarily pull this back to the world of of kind of selling, but, but for most of us, when we are asked to talk about what it is we do at our company, for most of us, what we do is a job. And so it's sometimes hard to manifest the conviction around what it is that we do. And, and, and mark my words, the same way hopefully people can tell that I'm passionate about what I do and I can get up on stage and effortlessly talk about this stuff because I love it so much. If you don't love what you do or you think about what you're doing is like it's more like an academic exercise or you're, you're regurgitating content that was fed to you by the marketing team or you're getting too product-centric, like I can tell, right? I can tell that you don't believe in what you do. Right. What I always tell give this example for those who are out there listening who have kids. I have three kids. When my kids come to me and they're about to hit me up for something, right? Like uh, they want to lift to the mall, they want to download an app. Like I can tell immediately by how they approach me, right? Like it seems like that. Like okay, the answer is no. Like I'm immediately defensive because I know you're going to hit me up for something. And so you know when you have someone who gets up on stage and is kind of delivering a message. I believe people are very perceptive, even if you're not kind of very conscious about how perceptive you are, you can tell your bullshit meter goes off when someone doesn't believe in what they do. And so I kind of, to your question, like I go back to that Simon Sinek, like I love what I do. I love this subject matter. Um, You know, I'm passionate about it. I know a lot about it. You know, there's still more I'm learning, but um, that's how I can turn it on on stage. Yeah. And it's obvious. Um, David, congratulations on, on everything you've built uh, from science to sales. It's been an incredible story. People can find you online 
at cerebralselling.com. Where else can they connect with you? Yeah, I mean, so cerebralselling.com, you know, has everything. Um, I mean, people sometimes connect with me on LinkedIn because, you know, I share stuff on LinkedIn. I also have a book called Sell the Way You Buy, uh, a modern approach to sales that actually works even on you, where I've kind of, you know, written down a lot of you know what I've learned over the last 20 years and various concepts from you know the leaders like Simon Sinek like Dan Pinks you know like Chris Voss so if you're more of a book person by all means check that out but yeah I try to consolidate everything I can onto the website you can learn about the book on the website as well uh, as a solopreneur to your question I have to find hacks for scaling and so I the way I one of the ways I do that is I give everything away for free on my uh website and YouTube channel. So you can find me on, on uh, the website as well as uh, my YouTube channel is just Cerebral Selling if you want to check it out. Amazing. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you coming on. It's been a great hour. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Pat. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today.